Long before the availability of 24-hour news cycles, Netflix, cable networks and reality TV, companion stations to the urban networks existed all over regional Australia. BTV6 in Ballarat was one such station, providing reach to the communities of Ballarat and Western Victoria. It provided local content to service the population, news, commercials and variety. Following in the mould of offerings in the major cities like In Melbourne Tonight with Graham Kennedy, The Don Lane Show and The Mike Walsh Show, BTV6 came up with their own offering, Six Tonight. Fronting the show was an unassuming chap who was thrust into the role based largely on his experiences in the theatre and behind the camera work at the station. He was very much learning an unfamiliar medium on the job. The host of Six Tonight was Fred Farger and he quickly established himself as a master of the form and was readily accepted through this regional offering of variety into living rooms around Victoria. Fred sat down with stages to discuss his unique experience, the challenges of mounting a weekly variety show that went live to air, and also the rewards that it brought. The interview was conducted during winter earlier this year on a cold Ballarat morning, and I began on the wrong foot with a comment about the chill that always seemed to exist when I visit the town. Do you get cold in Ballarat? I mean, I know you were... <laughs> I know you you were born here and you've spent your entire life here. No, I wasn't, actually. Here. You weren't born here. Where no, were you born? I was born in Creswick. Oh, which is just down the <laughs> down road. Down the road, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I know when I lived here, you, you're acclimatised to... Um, to the cold. To the cold. Yeah, right. uh, but, but coming back now, you know, it's, it's really, freezing. Yes. Do, it, well, it's not. And this, this is why Ballarat people object to that sort of statement. You want to live through a bad... Go and live in Northern Europe. Yes, then you'll know then what you know winter's what cold like. is. Yes, yes, yes. Or Canada or yeah, whatever. Even the states, northern states of the states, yeah. You've put me in my box then. Sorry. No, that's Sorry. No. I shouldn't I'll never, do it to someone as wonderful as you are, people. I'll never complain <laughs> about the cold again. Yeah, right. Um, look, just off air, we were talking about, you know, uh, people um, from Ballarat who've gone on to have professional lives in oh, the yeah. theatre. You know, yeah. we're talking about... It had a great... It was once known as, when I was a kid, it was known as the City of Culture. There was so much culture in Ballarat and so many famous people. I think the one I was brought up on was Elsie Morrison, the soprano. Oh, indeed, who yes. did a Who had a very successful career, either with Sadler's Wells or whatever was around at that time. I don't think the English National Opera Company was the, uh, around at that time. But anyway, she had a very, very successful career. And I think a singer called Mari Collier. Yes. Was she from Ballarat? I think so. Well, yeah. she, I didn't yeah. know that. I yeah. remember her. She came to a very unhappy end. I think, she did, I indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, I was just involved. But the famous in... Lemke family too. Oh, Bob, and then his, his father. Sons. Father had the voice, I believe. I never ever knew the old Mister Lemke. Did he have but, any sort of professional career? No, just very a beautiful singing voice. And Bob, of course, inherited it and could have gone on to wonderful, wonderful things, but chose marriage and children, um, and that didn't fit in with a, a, a professional career at that stage. Yeah. Uh, but you talk about a city of culture. I mean, the Royal South Street competitions well, it, have it gave been, a, yeah. Yes, it gave the city a, a very high reputation as far as... And the, the particularly the Sun Aria, which was the vocals' peak of the Royal South Street competitions. Um, in those early days, they used, there was an old hall down where Big W now exists called the Alfred Hall. It was built for the visit of 
one of the turn of the century royals. And um, they used to pack that, and it was a three or four thousand seater um, for the Sun Aria finals. Yeah, look, among the winners, uh, Dame Kiwi Takanawa. Oh, Tukanawa. yes, yes. Yeah, some it's huge a names. huge list of very successful singers, yes. Yeah. Ballarat's always been good at providing its own entertainment as well. You know, a woman called Wavy Williams and her pantomimes. Well, that's where I started. Um, I didn't have any aspiration to do anything, but my older sister used to flap around the house, supposedly tap dancing, and I used to mimic her. And um, my mother, and at that stage, my dad was a, a um, brass man. He was the assistant bandmaster of the Ballarat Soldier Sailors and Airmen's Memorial Band. And he'd been the, the bandmaster over at the Rochester Brass Band. Big days for brass bands those days. Well, you, you look at all the, these little country towns, they all have a, a band rotunda. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah, well, Maryborough. Yeah, absolutely. Your hometown, yes. Yeah, yeah. Famous, very, very good brass band, the Maryborough Brass Band. Yeah. So that would be a, a major form of entertainment I for suppose the it was, yeah. Pete. Yeah. As a kid, uh, and Dad really pushed me with a cornet, um, and as a kid, by the time I was 11, 10, 11, 12, um, I was playing with a senior band. There was a junior band, but there, I was playing with a senior band and we used to play up at the gardens of a Sunday afternoon, the Ballarat Botanical Gardens, over a Sunday afternoon, play a concert of all sorts of pieces from Gilbert and Sullivan to marches to hymns, etc., etc. Yeah. So that was sort of... The, the Wavy Williams thing happened at around that time and I, mum, unbeknown to me, signed me up to join the Wavy Williams Company. And I, I was a really angry kid. I was really annoyed that she did it because I was a wussy sort of a kid and, and I got um, teased at school fairly easily. And I thought, oh, once I start, start tap dancing, because that was the major sort of thing that the boys did with the Wavy Williams Company. The, the company had been set up, and I'm not quite sure of my facts here, she used to raise money during the Second World War for various war efforts, whatever they were. I'm not sure when the first pantomime was done, but it was either just before the war or very early in the Second World War, and they carried on through, became very popular. When the war finished, they still continued on, and that was at the time that, of course, I got involved in it. And it became the primary mover for me, the dance, song, all the... Not good training... When I look back, it wasn't good training at all. I mean, it was the era when if you were asked to start and slide down into the splits, for instance, they would push on your shoulders to try and force you down. Things like that. Very naughty. So was, was mum a stage mum or why did you not want really, you to get involved? Because did she think it was good to get you out of yourself? Or? Probably, yes. Yeah. I'm not really sure. It's too late now to find out. But she, she was a, an accomplished pianist and taught piano. I learned piano from the age of oh, six or five or something, through for a few years, but I was lazy. I hated practising um, our piano <clears throat> in the old house. There was no heating, so in the winter... <laughs> you sat in this freezing room, as we've just said, Ballarat, in the winter, um, and you froze your friggin' fingers off because <laughs> of, of the cold, yes. So that, that petered out. The, the cornet went for a lot longer... Um, but when the dance thing and the performing thing took over, this is what I find still an amusing story about my very first pantomime. I was given a solo. Um, there was a, 
a wonderful up-tempo thing called Chattanooga Shoeshine Boy, which I wanted to do. Mrs Williams had told us that we would have to audition with a piece to get this... Have you ever passed the corner of the fourth and rack where the river ball? It was a really jumpy thing. And I worked my backside off to do a really good job on this. And she's very good, Fred, very good. <laughs> and she gave it to another kid. Oh, and no. she gave me, I'm going to buy a paper doll that, that I can call my own. Yeah. And I was so peed off. I thought, this. however, as it turned out, Mum explained to me afterwards when she saw me, um, why I'd been given that because I had to start it unaccompanied and pitch the thing so the orchestra would come in and I was on pitch and this other kid who did have you ever passed the card couldn't sing to save his soul so that my mother explained that but the story that I was going to tell was that on opening night to my surprise mum made no attempt to escort me to the theatre she just said oh well off you go you know get the tram and you know what to do when you get off I didn't know what to do when to get I'm 10 right. and in those days a 10 year old was allowed to do that Trouble I don't think they would do that now no. they'd be worried that they'd get picked up by some pervert or other yeah. thing. anyway um, I eventually saw a girl I was standing on the post office corner <laughs> And I saw a girl from the company go down Sturt Street and I thought, oh, she must know where she's going. So I followed her and she went around the back because we were allowed in the front of the theatre at rehearsal time and we only did two rehearsals in the theatre. Two Sunday rehearsals was all we got, yes. This is um, Her Majesty's... Her Majesty's Theatre in Ballarat, yes. Yes, The first rehearsal, the boys had to wear white shorts and a black top. The girls were all in black. And the second one was the full dress rehearsal and that was it. That had to happen, you know. So it was pretty damn good of them to get it up and running because the standard, evidently from adults who I've spoken with since, was quite high for that era. Anyway, got to the theatre, did the show, and to my surprise, Mum appeared backstage after the... And they'd sat out the front. They hadn't told me because I was such a wussy kid they thought I'd get all nervous and horrible and I'd make a fool of myself and I'd make a fool of them sitting in the audience. (laughs) So, yeah, I was agreeably surprised and, and was surprised that she turned... Oh, they both turned up mum and dad, yeah. So did that ignite some fascination with the theatre yeah, and, and I, enjoyment I, of performance? Well, it did, obviously, or I wouldn't have kept on. Yes, I loved it and I worked with various dance schools in town after Mrs Williams had a breakdown of some sort. I can't tell you the details. Um, but you were a boy who could move and, and, and carry yeah, a tune. Well, well, I suppose, yes, because... And this sounds like self-congratulation, and I don't mean it to, but the first rehearsal I did with Mrs Williams, the first steps she gave me to work on, she said, oh, I'd tried what she showed me, and she said, oh, you've danced before. Who, who was your teacher? And I said, no, I haven't. She said, oh, you would, no, you must have. You couldn't do that without... So there was a kink there to perform or to dance anyway. So, yeah, anyway. That was the background to it. That was what kicked it all off. And then you got involved in uh, a a big way in amateur theatre in in Ballarat. Yes. As a choreographer and director and performer. Yeah, I did. Um, It was sort of a fluke, and it came from dance schools, but there was a very strong woman, as there often is in those sort of theatre companies, um, called Youth of Alpe, very famous lady around Ballarat. And there'd been, oh, 
one of those silly fizzes that can happen that there was a an argument or a, a difference of opinion with the original company in this town, which was titled at that stage the Ballarat Light Opera Company. And it had started out from church choirs and all that sort of thing, I think. This is as I understood it. And um, it developed into this performing group. And it started out also with, you know, tacky little lilac time or... Operators. Yeah, little operators. And I'm, I think some of them were self-written by a fellow whose name escapes me, Aussie somebody or other. Um, Ostrich. And, well, it could have been Aussie. Ostrich. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, that developed into the Ballarat Light Opera Company. And then there was a fellow who had been, had a similar background to my own by the name of Neil Case. But he was very strong, great belief in himself, something that I lacked a lot of. Very much an entrepreneur type. And a youth of Alpine and he, via a ballet school, um, where youth's children or one of her daughters learned, and she induced him to go along to the Light Opera Company to direct something. And they'd always worked out at the lowest Civic Hall, which is a smaller hall here, not the, the theatre. And um, he convinced them, they decided they'd do Oklahoma, and he convinced them to go to Her Majesty's and do more than the season they normally did. I think it was still only three nights in a matinee that they did with Oklahoma, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. No, it must have been... Friday, Saturday. No, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and Saturday afternoon. Yes, that's how it worked. And um, it was a big success. The production he did was a big success and he became the Diego of, of the Ballarat Light Opera Company and sort of then until he was employed by the Garnet Carroll organisation, he did about three or four shows. They did a very... The one that they look back on with the most affection is the production of the Offenbach operator La Belle Helene. And they got Women's Weekly, as it was then, a weekly magazine. They got coverage in colour of two pages of their production. And, oh, it got huge amount of yeah, kudos. That's extraordinary. So, mm, it was for the time. And he was innovative in that he put in a... I remember there was big talk about, oh, they're using a floor cloth on the stage with a pattern, a design on it. And he got a very clever woman, local artist, to do the sets for it and things like that. It was, as I said, very entrepreneurial, yeah. So there's, I mean, I think presently in Ballarat there's probably three theatre companies. Well, the, the, there are, this Youth of Alpine woman, shortly, by a strange coincidence, she finished up having a massive row with this Neil Case fellow and that was what split the company and Yutha went off and started her own company which became the Ballarat Lyric Theatre. And there was great friction between them. If you belonged to one or other company, you had nothing to do with the opposition and you were very unlucky, uh, or lucky would be a better way to put it, you'd be lucky if you got a role in the opposite company's whatever production they were doing, yes. And, of course, the National Theatre, which provided which opportunities for, for straight plays. Actors, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. So I guess with all those opportunities available to young people who wanted to have a career in the arts, uh, it was the perfect sort of playground because, you know, we, we talked earlier about, you know, the Lemke boys, yeah, uh, Jackie right. Dark, yeah. uh, Todd Jacobson, yeah, uh, Simon Maiden, you yeah, know, a yeah. whole lot of kids who've Came gone through. off to, to develop careers. Yeah. So, so what is it about the water in Ballarat? <laughs> 
do you think I that, don't um, think it is. I think a lot of them, it's been parental influence to start off. I mean, if you look at the Lemkes, obviously, the interest in the musical side, the vocal side of things, um, David Hobson, the same. Phil had had a sort of professional career, very, very short professional career, but he had worked professionally. I, other people have asked about that. What is it about Ballarat that produces these people? But if you were to look at other... You could probably say the same about Geelong, Geelong, couldn't you? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. maybe Bendigo. I'm not sure. Bendigo's never had that sort of reputation. And certainly Newcastle in New South Wales. It's the same? produced a lot of... Yeah, 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 right. I don't know. I think it might be just that it's not as hard to get roles in a regional centre as it is in a metropolitan centre. I can't really judge on that. So you can sort of work at refining your your craft a little bit. Look, do you remember the first time you... Saw TV. I mean, probably 1956 had arrived in Australia. Yeah, Australia. So um, well, was I, it in, some, in, in a shop store window? Yes, or? it would have been, yeah. yes. And I had friends by the name of Sheffield who had their own television um, store. They sold records and, and television sets, etc. It was a music store. So I remember it from that. I remember particularly, because we didn't have television for quite a long time, you were your own TV set yeah. or, or Ballarat didn't? No, 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 sorry. Um, we didn't have our own television. Oh, right, I've got to go into a small bit of technical stuff here. The, the reason that regional television stations were set up was that the signal, and I'm no technician but I remember this, the signal could only travel in a direct line for approximately 75 kilometres. Right. Beyond that, you didn't have a hope. In fact, we had, the family had friends in Rochester up in... And central, north central Victoria, who won a television set with the local footy club or something, and they <laughs> used to sit there, and it was just noise, just this crackle, crackle, crackle noise, and every so often a picture would fade in and then fade out again, you know, so because they were too far from anywhere to right. pick it up, yeah. So Ballarat was right on the very cusp, and there was what was called here the Golden Mile, up through the main street, anyone who knows Ballarat, Sturt Street, the dual carriageway street, which is the main street, for about two or three city blocks either side of that, you could get a signal because it came between the two mountains. Bunanyong and Warren Heap are the two mountains southeast of Ballarat and the signal would come up from the Dandenong transmitters and it would just make it. People could pick up the signal. So... um, the reason behind the regional stations was to expand the signal. So in Ballarat, before that happened, there was a very select area that could pick up Melbourne television. But apart from that, you were stuffed. You had no chance. Yeah. What were your impressions of television when you first saw it? I can't really comment on that. I, I mean, when we eventually got a television set... It was in the living room and we would sit eating our meals at the table. Mum wouldn't let us sit with food in our lap. Um, And the television would be on. And we used to like the programs around that time on the ABC and we could only get the ABC station and the local station at that stage. Um, And there were English... Oh, the Dickie Dickie Valentine show. and They were musical, lightweight, yes, light entertainment show. 
which we used to watch. And I guess programming really only existed in the late afternoon into the evening. Yes, we didn't it must have. No, no, not 24, not 24 hours. Hour. No, no way, no. no way, yes. And there was a woman by the name of Corinne Kirby who was a, one of their hosts, and they did a lot of that sort of hosting into the hour, though she would have two minutes to sit and talk about what was going to be on tonight, and all beautifully spoken because they were all ABC. Think times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, it was all very elegant, very, yes. So the um, arrival of BW6 in Ballarat. Righto, and, yes. and there was Bendigo had a station yep, too, BCV8. That's I right, yeah. yeah. Um, were they the only regional stations no, in Vic? No, there were five, wait on, let me think. Mildura, Shepparton, Bendigo, Ballarat and Taralgon. Five, yes. But Ballarat Britain. probably is quite unique because of the amount of output it produced? It, it gained a reputation for production, which the other stations... Well, you you can't blame Mildura. I mean, it's a small town by comparison of, with Ballarat. Bendigo was the biggest rival, and, of course, the two viewing areas overlapped a bit. So, well, you know, I grew up in Mirabar. Oh, so of course, we, you so we, were right we on the... Yeah, both. both. stations that yes, we could choose from. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I, I can remember there was a fellow who lived just down from us, who drove a BW6 van. And I was in awe of the fact that, you know, as most people were, television had such power in those days to appear on television. Wow, look out, you know. And I had another friend, female friend, with whom I'd worked, and her brother was an audio operator at Channel 9 and GTV 9. Wow. Very glamorous. Yeah, very. And this fellow down at the corner was just a technician. I shouldn't say just but he wasn't the, an on-air person. And I used to think, oh, he must be so intelligent and clever and all those things, yeah. So um, uh, the National Theatre, I think, in, in Ballarat at the time, put on a review called With Knobs On. They did, and that was my introduction to the National Theatre, actually. Um, I was asked, I mentioned the Sheffields, the, um, the sister of Mrs Sheffield was on the board of the National Theatre and they were looking for a compare um, for this with knobs on review, which was sending television up. And I had done a little bit of local theatre and I'd run for a brief period of time a dance school in Ballarat, as in jazz and not classical, jazz and tap. And um, we'd done a, a recital thing and... Um, I'd been seen because I danced in it as well, etc. And um, this lady said, oh, would he be available to do the compare thing? Which, yeah, I did. Um, and that sort of pushed me into the National Theatre area. Um, I did a couple of plays, badly cast. I was badly cast, I think, in retrospect. I mean, I was 22, I think. And I was playing... Charles Condamine in... Oh, perfect. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, all of 22. So what, that, with Knobs on, I mean, where did they draw them? It was obviously locally written. and A lot was, of it was locally written. It was but about they, the arrival of television. Television, yes. Um, but a lot of it was stuff that had been written, was English uh, comedy review stuff. Right, that, that, that they could obtain those. Yes, pictures, yes, yeah. in those days. Were yeah. you working at the station at the time? Or no, no. How, I, did, how did you arrive at BBC? Righto, I... Um, when the station started in 62, the initial intake, I wasn't aware of. I don't know what I was doing at the time. I can't remember. 
but I made no attempt to see if there was an opportunity to work there. Um, in 63 was the dance recital that I talked about, and after that there was a fellow here who managed Her Majesty's, which was then a cinema as well as a live house. Um, his wife had been a Tivoli showgirl, and when she saw my work, she said, oh, you should be working in television. I did all that. We're talking black and white television. Let's establish that too. Um, and Kevin, his name was Kevin Heaney, um, he, to my embarrassment, while I was sitting in his office, rang the television station. <laughs> and thank God, got a technician. Oh, no, you're ringing. You'll have to ring during office hours. In those days, probably everybody thought the television stations, because as we have already established, the station at that stage went on air um, three times a week at midday, the rest of the time, the other days of the week, not until four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And they were off air by 11 o'clock at night. You know, so intelligent television. <laughs> um, uh, so I... Eventually, via this Kevin Heaney, I was well. I went up for an interview, and it was one of those awful, embarrassing job interviews where you know damn well that you're there on spec. They haven't advertised for people, and I saw the production manager, and he was, and I thought, well, that's the end of that. However, at that stage, and we're talking 1964, Channel O. It's now Channel 10, the O network, as it was, opened the third commercial network in Melbourne. In Nunawadi. That's right, which is, isn't that the best word? Yeah, Nunawadi. Nunawadi, yes. And it's like Meninga 10. Straight out of the goon. Yes, it is, yes. And um, they lost, up at the television station, the local television station, BDV6, they lost a third, approximately, of their staff to Channel O. They'll probably be poached or something because they had the yeah, training. Yeah, they had and the training. Experience. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, they um, they lost all this staff in a large percentage of the production and switching staff, continuity producers, they were known as then. And I was given a call. You know, would you come up? We've got vacancies, and I was employed um, with the understanding that I'd be trained as a television director. Um, oh, okay, right. Hmm. Um, because so, they, they were looking at developing a production house, I guess. I suppose so. My first morning in regional television up here, we were making commercials during the course of the morning. Um, and it was all in-house thing, in the studio. It was a local furniture company and they brought a truckload of furniture up and we as stagehands had to set it all up in the studio to the direction of the guy who owned the store and then the local personality uh, fellow would do the spruiking in front of it. And in those days, they weren't strict about 30 seconds or 20 seconds or 10 or 15 or whatever. It just went for 47 seconds or whatever. You know, the commercial? To, yes. Right. To, it must have been hell for the traffic department to schedule it. But they did. They, yeah, but as I said, and in those days too, and this is possibly important when I, for what I've just said, they weren't beyond sitting on a clock just with music if they needed to pad or fill or anything, you know. So you were looking at me as though you didn't know they did that. No, no, I didn't. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, they no. did. Even the ABC right. would do it. They would go to their clock and you would get 
Excellent. Oh. I do remember that. Yes, yes now yes. that you say it, that's it would right. play out always to the the um, top of the the minutes, whatever. But I also yeah. remember wonderful television conventions, early television conventions of the, of, of the test pattern. Yeah, of course. Which would just yeah. be. It wouldn't be there 24 hours, would it? Where it would be well, in no, the hours was, leading up to yes, broadcast? Yes, broadcasting. And then when they went off air, they would go back to the test pattern with music. Yes, yeah. And uh, the epilogue. Yes. What was the, the epilogue? The epilogue, was yes. always a, a sign-off at the end of the at evening. At the end yeah. of the evening, a religious thing, yeah. Um, yes, oh God, please forgive us for our sins today. And yes, all that. And yeah. um, was that something that metropolitan stations would have been doing? Or I was can't that just remember. A, a it certainly was a regional thing that we used to do. You'd have the local Even, bishop or...? No, it was the local production <laughs> manager. Oh, really? His voice. Oh. He had a very dark brown expensive voice. Right. And I can't do it because I'm too pipey. But, yes, he used to do these. He'd record a great swag of them and they would just use whatever, yes, with organ music behind it. Yes, very churchy, yes. But it was the end of transmission. And then often, at the beginning, they'd play the national anthem, which was then God Save the Queen. Well, God Save the... Yeah, God Save the Queen. Yeah. Right. And obviously, uh, you know, you had a sales department because that was going to... Can I hold you there a minute? Absolutely, yeah. Funnier still, for some regionals, and I (laughs) know this happened in Shepparton, at five to six... They would do obituaries, local obituaries. And no, a fellow would really? come onto the screen, very po-faced, obviously, and we regret to announce the passing of so-and-so and so-and-so and do a little obituary. And then, and we regret to <laughs> announce the passing of... Yeah. Because, of course, the, the, the regional television stations were serving the community, the yes, local community. Yes, so, yes. What, so what sort of audience did... BW6 reach. That was uh, Gippsland? No, 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 Western no, no. Victoria? No. no, all Western Victoria. We were we went across to the South Australian border and then there was great controversy over who owned Miraburra, for instance, yep. who got more viewers there. And once a year, in the middle of the year, they would do ratings. And it was so patently obvious because they would save the best movies and the new series starting for that week that they were rated. And both Bendigo and Ballarat did it. It was, yes. I, yes, I remember that too. One of the top rating periods for the week, I guess, would be Sunday night. You yeah, sort of Sunday get a, night a, of the a movies. A recently released Movie. film that, yeah. that would just yeah. been on at the, the drive-in, yeah. perhaps. Yes. <laughs> None of them were terribly recent, I can assure you. Yeah. But there were, there were other little things, little idiosyncrasies. For instance, when I started in '64. At that stage, and I think all the regionals did this, the news service, apart from a local news service, also Channel 7, I know with with BW6, Channel 7, I'm not sure whether Channel 9 did it too, but they would send the night before's films from the news all up and the scripts. So the news editor of the television station, the regional television station, could take stuff from that and include it in the local news because we assumed that nobody in Ballarat or Western Victoria had seen what Seven had run that night before, yeah. So that wasn't unusual at all. One of my pet hates when I started, and I was a switcher, switching program, was World of Sport because it was so ad-lib. You kn- and we were at the end of the line. And this you is know? sort of Sunday lunchtime. Sunday lunchtime, mm. midday on mm. a Sunday for three hours. It was hell on wheels to switch. And we didn't have any connection other than you had to phone 
to get... We were sent the running sheet, which was about a 14 or 15-page running sheet to work from, and they would alter things like that, just on the whim. We would ring at 5 to 12, and a lady called Margot, who (laughs) was very short, and I understand why, because there was so much tension around the show. Yes, we're going to do that. No, we've changed that to that. Swap that over to there. That commercial won't... And you're trying to get this through on your own running sheet, but they would then alter it again during the course of the the program, and you you had no idea what was going to happen, and we weren't supposed to take commercials from Seven or anything like that. And, oh, God, yeah, it was hell to switch. World of Sport was a, uh, a Channel 7 program. I'd always assumed that Betty 6 was uh, aligned with Channel 9. No. But, uh, you took the, programs the whole, from any Anyone in those right, days, right. yes. It didn't matter, yeah. But um, I've got digressed there. I apologise. But, yes, the, the, there were things, network things at that stage that were not easy, yes. Right. Yeah. And I remember also there was a very famous moment in those early days of Ken Shorten and... Oh, now I've forgotten her name. Who played the mother in uh, Your Awful Muriel? Muriel's wedding. Jeannie Dryden. Jeannie Dryden. Mm. Ken Shorten and Jeannie Dryden had this scene in a program, a drama program, black and white, and the control board sent out this edict that it wasn't to go to air. It couldn't be shown as it had been shot. So the powers that... Because of censorship or something? Yeah, censorship, yeah. The powers that be at BTV6 told me, I was switching that night, told me, righto, at such and such a point, you've got to fade to black. You can leave the audio up, but fade to black so they can't see the vision. Well, it made it ten times worse because you heard her say, oh, no, don't do that. He's got his hand up his skirt in visually, but they thought that was too rude for the day. So, and... It just... We had... The phone ran hot, oh, as you can it imagine. Sounded worse, yeah. Yeah, it sounded worse. Yeah, it sounded worse than yes. if they'd let the whole thing go to air as it was. So what yeah. was switching? You were just in control of what you were was in, actually yes, going to air. Yes, right. yes. You had to insert the commercials if they weren't on film because there was a lot of film used in those days, not so much videotape. This is the very early days. And I know BW6 only had one videotape machine at that stage, two-inch wide tape. And um, there was not a heck of a lot Strangely enough, I remember that the Robert T commercials came in on two-inch videotape, yes. Wow. But not many programs. It was nearly all film, which, of course, lent itself because it was all spliced together by the film department ladies, putting the commercials physically, cutting the commercials and adhering them into the program at appropriate points. So it gave rise to the inevitable film breaks, which, you know, the film would suddenly come apart at that join and the... Telecine operator, whoever he was, we didn't have shoes. He would scream, Phil, break! And all hell would break loose, and you'd have to go to a slide with the logos. Yeah, all that carry on. Well, very quickly, the station had a huge production output. You know, I, I remember shows like Turf Talk, you yep. know, talking about the racing and um, uh, gardening shows yes. and cooking shows yes. and uh, magazine style and shows. Ladies' program, yes, ladies' program shows with beauty hints and all. All of those sorts of things. Um, children's uh, <laughs> yes. with cartoons and yep. local hosts and yes, all that sort of yeah, thing, all that. Uh, which was, was, was terrific. Yes, so, yeah. And I suppose gave. Um, some exposure to some, some local, well, there were, local yes, talent? Well, yes, there were people. Um, the original children's show program, um, Compare, Max Bartlett, he went down to Channel O, as it was, uh, to join the Magic Circle Club, which was a Godfrey Phillip 
produced program. He directed and produced it um, for about three years, I think that ran. And then the ABC, it, it folded and the ABC bought it uh, and it became Adventure Island, which you remember with Nancy Cato? Yes, yes. absolutely. And, yeah. um... Well, Nancy Cato had been a, a GMV, Channel 6 Shepparton um, hostess. And went on to metropolitan career in metropolitan. Um, Ernie Bourne as festival. Yeah, Bumble. that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. John Michael Housen as clown. was the yeah, clown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, mm. yeah so, uh, BTV Six, the other networks, regional networks, probably did equal amount of uh, commercial production, etc. But not so much program production, I suppose. And part of that was the dynamism of a couple of the senior staff. Up there, there was a gentleman by the name of John Stapp who had come from Adelaide, who was very strong in production. He eventually became a GM up there at the station. And there was a fellow who joined us uh, by the name of Gary Rice, who also was very single-minded in what he wanted to achieve at the station. And by a strange quirk of fate, was also a pretty good muso. Um, and that became... It developed a bit because in the early days, and this was prior to me being there, they did a program on a Saturday afternoon called Teen Time, which was tied in in some way with the local Saturday night dance at the Ballarat Civic Hall with a fellow by the name of Ivan Damon and whoever the the singers were who were coming up from Melbourne for the dance on that Saturday night. I'm talking singers, Olivia Newton-John, Pat Carroll, all these... Wow. Yeah, they yeah. were pretty big deal, yeah. yeah. Some of them didn't go on to huge careers, but a few of them did. And um, this Teen Time program used to feature local singers. Um, Graham Mills comes to mind. Johnny Ferguson comes to mind. Diane Gilbert, who were fairly regulars on this Teen Time program. And that's what introduced the wonderful, wonderful Graham Vendy to television. Um, he was the musical director for that and went on to be MD for everything that the station ever produced in a musical field. Yeah. Which which leads us to your very unique experience. I mean, down in Metropolitan TV, there was a program called In Melbourne Tonight, yeah, right, hosted by yeah. Graham Kennedy. Mm. And I guess it was only a natural thing that um, the regional station, BTV6, would have their own Tonight Show? No, I don't think so. No, you don't think all. so? No. So how did the Tonight Show come about? Again, these two blokes I'd mentioned earlier, Stapp and Rice, they, I think, were the instigators... I was actually dragged in to the front office two years before it happened. It started on the 25th of May, 1972. And it would have been about 19... Oh, it would have been 1970. I did a production locally in the theatre of the David Henneker musical Half a Sixpence. And... Oh, it sounds so self-congratulatory. I not only directed and choreographed it, but I played the lead, the Tommy Steele role as well. Now, that was 1970. The chairman of the board of directors from the television station saw me perform, and they were at that stage talking about what would be the possibility of being, be, of, of producing a light entertainment show with a, an eye on the local area, as it was. And I was dragged into the front office, as I said, in 1970, just after that season had finished, and the production manager said to me, look, we're thinking about starting a Tonight Show, Tonight Style Show, and your name's come up as a possible compare for it. Um, I'm just letting you know, 
because if it happens, you'll have to rethink um, your career path because you won't be able to switch. You'll be tied up with that sort of thing. I must admit at the time I thought, oh, yeah, ho-hum, this will go down the toilet um, because I didn't think the station would be big enough or have the facilities to be able to do it. You know? However, as I said, in 72, about February, it was suddenly, again, it reared its head and they said, we're going to go ahead with this Tonight Show. Had you been on camera before? Never. Oh, well, not for anything vaguely like that. I'd done some send-up stuff for the annual goof tape, which was always held, run at Christmas or whatever, you know. But no, and, and I, had, I had seen... I must admit that I had seen other people, and I don't mean this unkindly, I've seen other local people who had been involved with National Theatre or whatever appear up there and die, you know, just be absolutely awful. Well, we're very much learning on the job. Yeah, of course. And as somebody who'd done a lot of work in theatre, I guess you had to learn to recalibrate the size of your performance. Absolutely right. Because the camera doesn't doesn't lie. No, no, no. And originally I was, understandably, I was nervous as merry hell. And I can remember (laughs) the floor manager saying on the opening night of the the series... um, I'd never seen so many people go to the toilet in such a short time, ever. The camera crew were new. Everybody was, yeah, uptight. Because it was, you're, not, you're not only on camera, but this is live TV. It's live, yeah. yeah. No delay whatsoever. Channel 9 had, I th- think, generally a seven-second delay that if anything went wrong, they could get out of it. But we didn't. We were straight to air. What was happening was what you saw. Yeah. What was the most disastrous thing you remember? <laughs> There were can you many. share it? Yeah, there are many. I can. Share there are a many. Couple. One of the early ones was the first night the wonderful, wonderful Mary Hardy appeared oh, on the program. Who was had her own show, the, the Penthouse That's Club. That's right, yep. And she came up and she used to have great fun with my surname, Farga. Tell your mother on your Fred Farga. <laughs> well, that sort of thing. Anyway, the set, the host set at that stage, it was the original host set, was a series of arches, very shallow, um, and the desk which we always worked behind, was just in front of them. But this particular night, there was a band had been booked amongst the musical act, and the roadies who were with them, notorious, of course, roadies, um, one of them was absolutely drunk, rock-bottom drunk, and he somehow found his way around the back of the cyclorama, which was where the singers worked in the set, and that adjoined these archways... Mary Hardy was sitting, looking to her left. I was in front of her, as we are now. The archways were behind us. And she suddenly saw this bloke starting to (laughs) appear in the archway. By this time, the floor manager had discovered what had happened. He hurtled round behind the side, knocked the fellow to the ground behind the arches and put his foot on his throat and said, if you move, you're dead. <laughs> and at that stage, the guy wet his pants. Oh, no. And Mary Hardy could see all this, <laughs> and she said, I'm being sent up here, I'm being, there's com- something coming. But there wasn't. It was all <laughs> happening on live t- television. And you were completely so oblivious. I was oblivious right. to this whole thing. So there was, there's no denouement to the whole thing. It's just that she said afterwards to me, Fager, I thought you were doing something or other to try and send me up, and I was ready for it. But nothing ever happened. Yes, it was just the, the commercial break came up and they dragged the bloke out, wet pants and all. But for personally, 
I have, a, and I was only reminded of this recently by a former cameraman. We had a fellow on the program who had ridden a horse from Perth to Ballarat to raise money for some charity or other. I'm not denigrating him in any way, but he really did have a way. G'day, mate! He was one of those. And I started the interview, and occasionally, when you're really stupid like I am, you can get yourself tied into a yes-no answer interview. So you've ridden from Perth to Ballarat. Yes! Now, that's a long way. It must have been pretty tiring and pretty hard on you. Yes! Um, What would have been the most difficult part of it? Oh, there was a lot. (laughs) Right. Um, And uh, this went on for no longer probably than about um, 30 seconds to a minute, but it seems like an eternity. We're just getting yes. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, in, yeah. Uh, quickly I said, oh, now I have heard that the old cowboys of the old Wild West spent so much time on a horse they became bow-legged. Now, you've spent a lot of time of your life on, your, on a horse. Um, you are, oh, would you like to have a look at my bow-legged, he said. And I thought, oh, thank God for that. And I looked over at the audience and said, do we want to see the gentleman's... Yes, yes! So he stood up, and to my intense surprise... His legs were really bowed. Bow legs, yeah. right. wow. And I said, live on air, oh, good heavens, you've got a good six inches between your legs there. And <laughs> the audience, as one, you got so used to work, pardon me, working to lenses, that as one, these three cameramen's heads went out from the camera with shock, registering shock. I looked over, the audience is falling about quietly, thank God, and I thought, oh, my God. God, what have you just said? How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Yes. Don't make a joke of it or you'll be put off air. There's nothing short. I cannot to this day remember how I got out of it, but got out of it I did. So were you left to your own devices when you had a guest? Did, did, did someone write questions no, for you? Or? No, that Regional television, that was one of the areas that I, I really most object to in retrospect. In Melbourne, it was all handed to you on a plate. I did the Peter and rehearsed too, probably, yep. and all that. Sort I did of the thing. Peter Couchman show. Did the Mark Walsh show. It was like smooth as because it was all. Were you given research well, as a guest? Were you given the questions that you would be asked? No, beforehand? not given the no, questions. Right. No, okay. but certainly it was all very, very organised. And here it was just you know everybody had other jobs that they had to do during Look, the week. Look, it may be a, a position of ignorance too. People just weren't aware that the host would probably want questions written or researched. I don't know, Pete. <laughs> I truly don't. Yeah, it was it was tough call. The, when I first started out, the difficult thing for me was the interview stuff. I used to carry a clipboard and I would write questions that I thought... Because there was no internet or anything. You couldn't go to Mr Google and find out some background on these people. They would, yeah. I remember very early in the piece when Bob Hawke, the former um, Prime Minister, was the president of the ACTU and was notorious, you're too young to know, but he used to eat journalists. He would. He didn't tolerate fools at all. I mean, he was a Rhodes Scholar, for goodness sake. Yep. And, so and, you had to be on your game. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And it, they booked him to come up and do one of the interviews very early in my career. And I was, yeah, I had diarrhoea for a month before that happened. So. Did it go all right? Yeah, it went really, really well. He... he said to me afterwards, I really enjoyed that. I, that was a good interview. But I didn't get terribly political. I'm not a political person, never have been. Right. And that's where I think 
journalists got themselves into his bad books because they don't you listen I remember him saying don't you listen to what I'm telling you don't you listen to the answers stop looking at what you've got there on your clipboard I've already answered that you know and he'd really have a go at them on air live yeah so who, who were the, some of the guests that you remember fondly vividly or notoriously one of them was the wonderful Eartha Kitt who I mean this woman had been big 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 in the United States she was a very well-known entertainer and yeah, all that. She suddenly, I can't even begin to imagine what she would have thought, was doing a regional tour of Australia. That's a pretty big come down for mm. me. Mm. We booked her for the show. She then... But they have to do promotion, don't they? They so, do, so they do, is, yes, yeah. of course. But she... Um, the manager rang at the day before she was to, we were to do it and said, look, she can't do the show live, she's prepared to record, but she won't do it live. It's not convenient. So we said, yeah, right, OK, we'll do that tomorrow in the afternoon. She arrived up and I still remember going to the foyer of the place when the girl rang me and said, oh, the kids are here for you. And I went out and said, oh, look, thank you so much. For doing this, and she looked me dead in the eye and said, "So like air," and I thought, "Oh, this isn't shaping up terribly well at this stage." And we went down to the studio. I had done my homework, and by a strange quirk of fate, I had bought the album years before of New Faces of 1952, which had been the program that launched her onto the American scene as an entertainer. Anyway, she said four minutes was all I. Yes, that's okay, right? I thank you. I got 15 minutes out of her, and at the end of it, she looked at me and grinned and said, that was wonderful, that's the best interview I've done in Australia. What are you doing tonight? And I said, nothing. And she said, would you compare my concert? Eartha Kitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said yes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it was wonderful. But I guess, yes, if you can find that connection with a guest. That's the secret of it. And don't try and top them in in, in any way. To if they're particularly comedians, I think that's why Graham Norton is so. Yes, so do I. Absolutely right. He sits there and let the stars be the stars. Yeah, yeah. agree. Agree entirely. I did do some baddies. I, I was so in awe of Spike Milligan. I loved him. I thought he was the funniest. You know, I just... I know I didn't do a good interview with him because I was so... Stage-struck. Yeah. Did that happen? I guess that could happen a lot. No. Well, there were... It was odd that it should be him because I had a very stressful time with Shirley Bassey, Dame Shirley Bassey. Stressful only in that we had to record that interview in Melbourne and it was at her press conference with every bit of media oh, right. and from Melbourne there. And to my horror, the whoever, who, the organiser, had a list. He said, right, first up, BDP6, Fred Parker. I thought, oh, my God. There would have been at least 60 journalists in the room. And here I am about to sit on the couch with Shirley Bassey. And I, I know I did a really good job of it. And I'm, I'm particularly proud of that interview because she said to me, God, that was good. They, they were exact words, God, that was good at the end of it. And at the end of it, when we'd finished it, the whole room burst, burst into applause. So, you know, that is when you know you've done it, That's done a good job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and that was the... Linda Ronstadt was the same. 
it was the press conference thing, but she was very shy, and it was difficult to get stuff out of. Cheryl was, we were off. Yeah, she was terrific. But it's extraordinary the names who would come up to Ballarat and, and uh, the village yes. people, Peter yeah, Allen, John yeah, Farnham. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, they all did it. The show became sort of, and I don't mean this because of myself, cultish. Oh, have you done that little show in Ballarat? It's great fun. You've got to do it. You know, yeah. you'll have a great time, etc. And we used to look after them. Um, <laughs> well, they're going to reach a whole uh, section of Victoria, which yes. they otherwise yeah, would Yeah, there was potentially a million people yeah. out there that they could reach, yeah. Um, but there were toughies that, yes... I shouldn't mention this particular name because she's still around and she's, I think, oh, what the hell. Um, Helen Bidet, the actress. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Yep. She was tough going. Really? She was, yes. Her manager came up during, because I'd devoted an entire, this was the morning show, um, I'd in, devoted an entire program to her and she was about to open in My Fair Lady in right, Melbourne, yep, yep. Yep, playing Eliza. And she was either out of sorts, I don't know what, but at the first commercial break, because we went to air live, um, the manager came up and he roasted her in front of me. Listen, you get your act together. We've got potentially a million seats to sell here. He really went through it. And she was all right after that, but started yeah. off badly. Uh. I found I loved her, but I found Helen Morse difficult too. She's very intense. Was very intense. But I've also got all out for the fact they were coming to regional television. And there's always that yeah, sort of... Yeah, they weren't of, quite sure what they were Yeah, coming to... I remember yeah. saying to Kerry Bedell, the jazz singer, what did you think when you were booked to do this nighttime show in regional, you know, little downtown Ballarat? She said, yeah, Fred, I thought the worst. <laughs> but the musos were all good. Great. So she, was, she got out of think, wow, yeah, that was fun. Great. Yeah. Um, because, of course, one of the conventions of a tonight show is that live music, which you said was under the baton of Graham, Graham Vendy, Vendy yeah. um, but a lot of great singers that would come up and... Well, you'd have two or three numbers a night? Or? Uh, yeah, there would have been. More than that, actually. There were <laughs> Sorry, I'm giggling because at one stage they introduced one spot of the music spots. Opened with a music spot. There was a first interview, music. Second interview, music. It must have been three or four numbers a night, maybe more. I know the first night John Farnham did the show... Um, it went on and on and on because we kept asking him, well, would you do something? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, great. Yeah, and, and he was oh, top bloke, John, top bloke. He was Johnny in those days, of course. Um, but uh, the, it was open-ended, always, the program, the nighttime program, but uh, it varied with various people. Usually no one, no one got the treatment that John got, probably, yeah. Did you always manage to finish at the scheduled, what was it, 11 o'clock or something? Or Never. <laughs> you always put Never. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, you always finished with the, you had a wheel as well, didn't that you? That was the middle, of the, or late, late middle of the show, yes. Uh, it was just the same as GDV9. Yeah, IMT it was sort of a copy, thing. really. It yeah, sort of, it was. But, but, was, but exactly. if, it, if it worked, yeah, do yeah, it, of course. Yeah. But um, And the, the prizes on the wheel would all be local prizes too, I guess? Um, I, there was always a car, which was no. the biggie to win. Um, originally, the whole thing was sponsored, that section was sponsored by Hunters, the people who made um, cleaning products and right. all that sort of thing. Yep. So there were lots of those little prizes, yeah. a hunter's pack, yeah. which was, you know, lots of things. Um, I don't really remember, Pete. It's a terrible thing to admit. 
um, but I don't. It gradually, because the show grew in success, so the prizes grew accordingly, accordingly that yeah. they were not so... Yeah, and of course you, you had a, a second banana in Denise Drummond. Yes, Denise came up and worked with us. Uh, I don't can't remember which years it was. At the time she was married to she married Chris during that period of time. Yeah, great. Oh well, everybody knows that great girl, just a great girl, and great fun and very unpredictable. Um, the difference between regional television and metro television came out with one particular incident I remember vividly, that there's a quite well-known men's store in this city called Messer and Opie, and she used to refer to them on air as Messy and Dopey. And, <laughs> and they objected oh. um, because they felt it was you know, demeaning the yep. business. But in fact, of course, it did wonderful things. It was, yeah. no, it was no different to Bert Newton with his, you know your feet are hurting if you're wearing Ralph Merton, mm. yeah. all that sort of thing. It, Send it up yeah, and the and people remember it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yes, they objected. So she, had, she was told, no, can't say that on air. Yes. <laughs> How long did the show run, Fred? 13 years on criticism. <laughs> <laughs> So why did it finish up? Um, costs, basically. I think everything... And, and, you know, everything evolves when you look at television now with its reality carry-on and house-building and cook, cooking stuff, etc., etc. Um, people's tastes changed. Because I, I used to wonder the same thing. I knew that our costs were going through the roof because just accommodation often... Um, the, the guest wouldn't want to, the major guest wouldn't want to go back to Melbourne that night can I have, can you book me a room and we'd always have to get the honeymoon suite or something the at the city Mid-City, Motel. that's right yes, <laughs> and they would stay over and things like that made the costs increase you know, dramatically even Muso's fees probably, I've got to tell you and this is the absolute God's truth I was paid $20 on top of a very mediocre wage to do that program up there. <laughs> People don't believe me, but it is the absolute truth. I, I accepted, didn't even question it or anything else. I was mortified some years later to find out that the producer and, and well, he was the muso from the band, got $35. <laughs> For playing in the band, and I was on twenty bucks. But to you've told me that you you also often would build the set. And, yeah, I did. And paint I did all the and, sets. And all and, yeah, there was nobody there to yeah, do that sort so of you thing. Had to do it. You had to do it. Or yeah. So mm. what what killed off regional TV stations? Well, they were on borrowed time from day one. I've already explained that the signal could only go so far, and then it would peter out. Okay. Well, Peter out. Peter out, yes. And, I'm going. Um, yes. <laughs> anyway, um, we all knew that if technology improved, once satellites came into the whole business, um, it was only a matter of time before they'd be able to get the signal from the, the metropolitan stations right through across the country. And when that became a reality, well, there was aggregation first... That, that each of the so networks... what is aggregation? Oh, the, each of the networks, the, the metro networks, had to align with a regional network um, because... So that's where we get the Channel 6, Channel 9... Exactly, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And there was great um, competition to get Channel 9 because it was the personality station and it rated 
best of all at that stage. Seven had always been the sports station. And because GMV6 was the sister station to BTV6, there was a link there. So whatever Ballarat got would go straight through to Shepparton. But Bendigo was smack bang in the middle and they both networks wanted the nine station at that stage. But of course, Six was lucky to um, crack it to get Channel 9. The, the technology became um, so sophisticated, well, sophisticated for these days, heaven knows in 50 years, there was, there was an expression going around 20 years ago that, oh, by the year 2000, oh, no, the 20 years ago is nearly 2000, let's say 30 years ago, um, by the year 2000, it'll all be coming out of Sydney, everything in Australia, and by 2010 it'll all be coming out of Los Angeles. Right. Thank God that that hasn't happened yeah. because American television, with all due respect, is pretty garbagey. Yeah. Um, so it was just a, a simple situation that technology increased, improved, and the regionals were no longer needed. Simple as that. We've got this plethora of uh, reality shows and, yeah, and yeah. talent shows on TV at the moment. Do you think there's a place for variety no. once again? No. Channel 9, the variety today is Australia's got talent. And that's what variety... That's my interpretation of variety in Australia now. Channel so a show like IMT or 6 to 9? No. no one, you don't think uh, would go uh, Well, see, Channel 9 tried it with Frankie J Holden. Yes, yes. Some years ago. Recent, yeah. yeah, and it didn't work. It just people weren't interested anymore. It perhaps a small part of it revolves around the front man or woman, um, whoever hosts it. You've only got to look at daytime stuff that Mike Walsh dominated, as did Ray Martin. Yep. Dominated. And then yeah, Kerry Ann. Mm, mm. um, but it's all gone. All now gone. it's American. Thing of the past. What's her name? The blonde, short haired woman? Uh, Al- Ellen. Ellen, mm, yes. Yeah, mm, she's mm. now. Yeah, or Dr. Phil. Yes. It's all that sort of thing. I don't know. The public's taste changes all the time. Te- television doesn't have anywhere near the power, as far as the average person is concerned. There's not that, oh, you're going to be on television. There might still be to a small extent, but I don't think it's got the magic that it had 50 years ago. You know, people... There's a whole... Well, two generations probably have grown up not knowing what it was like without television. I'm old enough that I do. Yeah. When radio was a thing, when I was a kid, we sat and listened to radio serials glued to the radio station, the radio receiver, and got scared if there was a, a scary bit, you know. You couldn't see anything. It was just they played on your mind, your imagination. Yeah. So it all changes. Yeah. Well, as a kid growing up in Mirabara, um the Don Lane show and certainly Six Tonight were the mm. highlights of my week. So, But you, you had a bent towards... Oh, performance, the, I suppose, performance, and, and all yeah. of that sort of thing, yeah. I guess, yeah. But that some, makes a difference, because some people's idea of hell was that to have to sit through a... I remember I came know. over a couple of times with, with Mum Did you? and an art to see Six Tonight Live. We are in the live studio audience, oh, yeah. and we got some sunny crust bread. Bread, yes, a loaf of bread. <laughs> yeah, crumbs, yes. Yeah. It was just amazing, the, the difference now compared to, to those years. I still have people who work with me in those years up at the television station who slightly bemoan the fact that it's all gone, it's all finished. Why? What What happened? Uh, there's a fellow, a very dear friend, who used to be a senior cameraman up at the television station who still hankers 
to get on behind a television studio camera and and be senior cameraman for a Tonight Show. Yes, because it was it had a buzz about it. Be very exciting. Not yeah. well now in your position with not unlike when you've got a, a live production mm. about to open. Mm. Yes, there's always that element, the the adrenaline's flowing, and yes. So what's your, what's your television consumption now? Do you do you tune in nightly or do you do you watch streaming? I services. I'm almost computer illiterate, which I shouldn't even admit to. Right, right. So when you say streaming, I know what you, you mean. You know your Netflix yes, or your Stan. Yeah. I don't that. have Netflix. Right. I was asked about it just the other day. Do you want to get Netflix? But you could waste, in inverted commas, an incredible amount of time sitting... I have a thing about old black and white movies. You know, yep. I'm, I'm more frequently, when I'm having my lunch, will turn on, I think it's Jem, who run all these old, yes, the old black great. and white yep. British... God, awful films... <laughs> But they're interesting. Ealing Studios. Yes, yes, yes. Although they did run Billy Liar a couple of weeks ago with Tom Courtney, which oh, I'd right. never seen. Well, you get some, yes. you get some gems. Yes, every now and yeah, then. yeah, exactly yeah. right. So, no, I, I'm thankful for SBS. I love SBS. I think they have beautiful programs, both SBS and Viceland. Um, yeah. Uh, and the ABC. But I don't watch much regional, not regional, not much commercial television because I'm not interested in the reality stuff I'm, I couldn't care less who's the best cook in Australia and, and there's something I've seen promos for with great bodies, male and female bodies. Oh that's Love Island or something Is it? I think. Yeah. I can't yeah. remember what it's called yeah. but I've sort of thought whoa gee whiz but then um, <laughs> we act the guy, I have a couple of again old television friends and we talk about the Boobs and Bum show which is it Viceland run on a Friday night? It's n- naked. They're in oh, the, naked dating. Yeah, that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, no, naked. this is called Adam Adam and Eve. It's a right. Finnish or oh. German or something. Classy, whatever it is. Yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. But the fascination, if you're a, if you're a pervert, it must be, you know, whoa, look out tonight. Yeah. Get the wine out. We're going to sit and watch Adam versus Eve or whatever oh, it's called. It's a different world, Fred. It is, different It is. But uh, you can't prescribe for everybody else. Our era was what it was. Television was young. It was a novelty. And as you mentioned earlier, um, it went with very sensible hours um, from lunchtime. <laughs> I, I keep thinking from lunchtime because... The, the daytime stuff was so, in lots of ways, banal. Um, there were a group of women from a local pharmacy here, and one of them in particular became very famous. Her name was Ethel McCulloch, wonderful lady. She was always marvellously well-groomed, and she was no spring chicken, but she was, yes, and she presented this thing called Beauty Box. And it was all, ladies, we're here today... To talk about your eyelashes, and they which, do. Which is what Magda did. So they sent it up on uh, fast yes, forward. Yes, that's right. Hello, my wordy word word yes, Chanel. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, yeah stuff. wonderful stuff. Mm, mm. But it really was like that. And I can remember on the Mavis Bramson show. God, there's going back. Uh, Maggie Dent, um, going back, and she did. Or they did this thing on a, a send up of. Uh, it was a satirical comedy program for those people who may not be aware of Mavis Bramson. Um, <laughs> and they did a send-up of um, regional television and 
the newsreader was female, which was a no-no in those days. And she read this. And the the farmer, so-and-so, and so the cows did come home. Well, you don't have to keep on looking for that cow that was lost. And, and Mum, I won't be home for tea tonight. So... <laughs> Not far from the truth, really. Not far from the truth. Yeah. Just a bit too far, but yes. Yeah, very funny stuff. Funny, funny stuff. Well, thanks, Fred. Thanks for Oh, look, it's a great pleasure today. to sit and talk it's, to you. Uh, that's really interesting. Reminisce. Yeah. Mm. You don't want to give us an epilogue to finish off. <laughs> no. I, I, if I had one of those rich, dark, brown, expensive voices, I would do, oh, God. But I can't do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Have you subscribed to Stages yet? Do so and keep up to date with every new guest episode as it is released. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and through Wooshka. And please take the time to rate and review the podcast in the iTunes directory. It helps to grow our audience and reach more Stages listening. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for joining us today. Catch you next time on Stages. Stages.